welcome to this uh, pre-show performance uh, uh, to tell you about Louisa Miller. I'm Sarah Lenton, and uh, I talk about opera a lot at uh, the Royal Opera House and Garsington, and of course at English National Opera, which was my first theatre, and it's very dear to my heart indeed. And sometimes you catch me on the radio. I would like my guests, our guests, to introduce themselves, starting, please, with Stephanie. Hello, my name is Stephanie Childress. Uh, I've been the assistant conductor on this production. Um, my background is primarily as a violinist slash pianist, sort of, as you might um, see later. And yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure working for the first time with the ENO. I'm Simone. I'm one of the staff directors on Louisa Miller here. And um, my background is in directing in theatre, um, but also a little bit in performing. So this is my first time staff directing for ENO, though I have been here a bit before as a chorister. Um, my name is Jonathan White. I'm a professor emeritus in literature, but I've uh, moved over more and more into opera. I was a cultural historian of uh, Italian uh, culture and wrote two books on Italian culture in each of which there was stuff on opera. And so uh, since the writing of those books, um, mainly the Royal Opera House has had me writing various opera programs. They tend to get me to write on Verdi or, or the Italian repertoire, generally speaking. And it's been really ple pleasurable to work, work through those, uh, those various program notes for, for um, major operas. Thank you. Th thanks. That's, that's so... That's us all sorted. Um, I just want to slightly place this opera in context. And uh, could I just see if anyone's actually ever seen Louisa Miller before? Yes, se several, several. Was that the Royal Opera House production way back? Now that's it with Bagonzi. <laughs> but, yeah, I remember. <laughs> OK, how wonderful. Lucky you. I, I envy you. Oh, you saw it with Domingo. OK, in his tenor moment. <laughs> right, thank you. Right, well, this opera was uh, written by Verdi in turbulent times. It was 1849. That's just a year after Europe had been convulsed by all the 1848 revolutions and things hadn't really calmed down. Uh, Verdi didn't seem to have his finger on the pulse too much of what was going on. I mean, of course he did. But he, he, he proposed one show for an unbelievably conservative and repressive Naples about heroic Florentines um, being rebellious in the... In the Renaissance and his librettist went pale green and said, no, let's, let's, let's find something else. So um, what they came up with eventually was Louisa Miller. And this is called early, early Verdi still, or the Verdi's sort of cracking through his 30s now. Um, and it's the moment before Verdi really gets into his own. He's got Stefalio to write after this show. And then we're into the home straight with Rigoletto, Trovatore and La Traviata. So quite another Verdi is about to emerge. And I think we've got a slide of Verdi up. Yes, there he is, looking young and radical. Um, the story is unbelievably simple. Uh, Louisa, our heroine, is a villager, loved by a young man who calls himself Carlo and appears to be a huntsman. He is, in fact, the son of the local ruler, Count Walter, and he's in disguise. And as usual, you think, oh, God, why has he gone for a disguise right at the beginning of the show? And it's really, it's a very, very traditional plot. Actually, young aristocrats were not popular on stage with virtuous peasants, because if they were after a girl, they weren't usually thinking about marriage. Uh, so a disguise is sort of necessary. And um, 
Louise's father, who's called Miller, he doesn't seem to have a first name, does he? No, Herr Miller, shall we call him, um, uh, has accepted Carlo and as, as a prospective son-in-law and is alarmed when Count Walter's henchman, called wonderfully Vroom, um, appears and says, hey, you promised Louisa to me. Miller says, in effect, well, she doesn't like you and I can't force her. Ha, thinks Vroom, I'll see about that. And he takes the, his first opportunity to reveal who Carlo really is. His name is Rodolfo, and he is, as I said, the son of Count Walter. Uh, consternation, as you can imagine, especially Vorm, adds that he's engaged to his cousin, who's a duchess. And uh, Rodolfo now appears to all the village as a cad. But, of course, Rodolfo is in love. He's the tenor. Uh, and he's a typical Verdi tenor. He's passionate and impulsive and doomed. He's, a, he's an absolute loser, poor chap, they all are. Um, but he does hold one winning card. He knows a dark secret about his father. And he's determined to reveal this if the plot gets out of hand. At this point, he actually justifies his father, but we get a pre-echo of the staging of the dark secret in this particular production as Walter maltreats a terrified young man. I shall be asking... Um, Simone about that a bit later. Anyway, I'm not going to go through all the, the bits and pieces, but, but you might notice sort of made some major confrontations happen. Rodolfo has to tell the splendidly assured Federica that he doesn't love her. In fact, worse, loves another, and she doesn't take it very well. Um, Miller is arrested for daring to have a daughter in love with Walter's son, and Vroom forces Louisa to write a letter apparently declaring her love for him, Vroom, um, to get her dad out of jail. Tension mounts up. Rodolfo manages to get Miller released by revealing to his father that he knows his dark secret, which is that he killed the true heir to the title. And then we discover that Walter and Vroom did this together. And so the, the two villains are a bit alarmed by that. But by now, Rodolfo has seen... Louisa's letter, apparently expressing love for Vroom, he goes completely berserk and comes to Louisa's cottage with a flask of poison. Only ten minutes to go. You can imagine life's going to get difficult. So actually, though, in spite of all this, on the face of it, if we could just see the next uh, slide, Amy. It's so kind of Amy to do this. Uh, this is, this is uh, uh, a still <laughs> from the first production. This is sort of a conventional plot, isn't it? A, a gothic setting. It was originally set in the Tyrol. Village maiden, aged father, wicked aristocrat, sympathetic chorus. Uh, young man who gets it wrong, but hey. Um, and and you, you sort of almost expect it to be like Giselle, really, at the beginning, and certainly a sort of melodramatic show. But in many ways, I feel the story has been tidied up, pared down. And I have this sense that this show is truly based on its Schiller play, which is a starker, rather more complicated drama by Frederick von Schiller. And as I have Jonathan next to me, I'm going to hand you straight over to him. Tell us about Schiller and this okay. play. Now, um, I'm not alone in thinking that uh, Schiller is kind of the driving force behind... 19th century opera, the serious side, meaning at, at any rate. He's kind of the heart blood of, of 19th century Italian opera in particular. 
Why might that be? Well, um, Goethe said 22 years after Schiller's death. Now, Goethe and, and Schiller had been close from 1794 through till Schiller's death in 1805, that throughout all Schiller's works, there runs the idea of freedom. Now, uh, you could think of that Oh, you need your uh, microphone, sir. I'll use my microphone. <laughs> yes, sorry. Um, we could think of that as freedom of the individual or freedom of the, of the political state. But um, certainly it's there, and it's there in, big, in a big way in uh, even the early dramas of Schiller, uh, The Robbers, Fiesco, and Cabala uh, und Liebe. Court Intrigue and Love is, is the name of the Schiller play from which this opera is taken um, um, and redacted. Now, some of you may know the very great uh, literary critic Eric Auerbach and his major book of 1949, as early as 1949, Mimesis or the Representation of Reality in Western Literature. Uh, Auerbach takes this Schiller play um, from uh, 1782 as uh, one of his exemplary chapters because he thinks that uh, the play is a dagger thrust into the heart of absolutism, as he says. Now, he actually also says that it's not all that good a play, um, but that this it does. It, it has a go at absolutism. I won't go on about that. It is a very, very major essay um, on Kabbalah und Liebe, uh, using it as an exemplary uh, uh, piece of uh, what it calls itself a bourgeois tragedy. Schiller called this play a bourgeois tragedy. Um, and uh, Auerbach explicates why that's so important. But I want to go back and say, what did Schiller know about um, uh, uh, tyranny or repression? Why was he so keen on freedom? Well, Schiller grew up in a small German state, the state of Württemberg, um, the court city of which is Stuttgart. And he grew up under the ruler Karl Eugen of Stuttgart. And his father had served in Karl Eugen's armies, uh, including in the Seven Year War um, of mid-century. But Karl Eugen was a very strange ruler, quite autocratic. But once he'd had his thrill with armies, he went in for education, and he went in for building. And like a lot of Euro European rulers, he was driven by the French model of Versailles, by Louis XV's court and palace, although it had been built under Louis XIV. He, was, he wanted, and this, this is across the face of Europe, lots of rulers, the Neapolitan ruler tries to emulate Versailles at his big palace of Caserta. Um, he wanted to imitate Versailles. Um, so he built lots of palaces, and in one of them, because he became fascinated by education, he situated a military school. And he then had to find model pupils for this military school. So he scoured his small German state for pupils to be the first intake at the school. 
and Schiller, who was the son of a captain in his army, a captain who was being transferred into um, plantsman duties at the new Palace of Solitude, which uh, Karl Eugen had built in the 1770s. Um, the son of, uh, of this captain of his army was doing very promisingly in classical studies in the school that he had been beforehand. So Karl Eugen takes him into this school, which is called thereafter the Karl Schule. That's what we know it by, Karl's school, Karl Eugen's school. And um, given a rather military and disciplined education. Now, many people, many people have said, and they have some support from Schiller's letters and other writings, that Schiller detested those years of his life. But they were very rich years as well because the masters in that school um, were very young, very highly educated, very poorly paid, um, but they taught him uh, uh, French dramas, they encouraged his interest in German dramas. Uh, the, uh, Karl Eugen himself enforced his officers to take their families to the operas that were put on in Stuttgart and the plays that were put on and all artistic activities. So, Schiller says of his first main published play of 1781, The, the Robbers, that really this play is about genius in conflict with thraldom. Genius in conflict with thraldom. And I think that we can say that the description, genius in conflict with thraldom, in some respects um, is a good description of what uh, Schiller's life was like um, during those years of schooling. He was very brilliant. He was developing his talents. He was writing a lot of poems, and he was writing plays, um, including in his last years at this school. He didn't issue forth from it till 21. And by the way, he changed from legal studies at that school to medical studies. So he, he issues from that school as a medical officer for the state of Stuttgart. And he practices medicine for a couple of years until Mannheim takes up his place. But in the final years in that school, he's already writing Die Räuber, The Robbers, um, which becomes in Verdi's um, uh, career, I Masnadieri, uh, of the mid-1840s. Uh, um, so Verdi's already been working with um, Schiller before he comes to uh, this play, Kabbalah und Liebe, and, um, and adapts it with uh, his librettist Camerano's help. Now, I just want to say a few more words than Sarah's already said about Verdi's and, Camerano, uh, and, and Camerano's work on the Schiller play. They do scale it down, in some ways most dreadfully, <laughs> um, because uh, in particular, something that, Schiller, uh, that Verdi doesn't want to do but is forced to do, mainly by the censorship in Naples that Sarah's already mentioned. Heavy, heavy censorship in Naples. Verdi wants, like in the Schiller play, for there to be another strong and interesting woman, really strong and really interesting woman in this opera. And in the Schiller play, that other strong and interesting woman is an English um, 
aristocratic woman, Lady Milford. She's been the mistress, but the official mistress of the head of state, the prince, who never appears in the play. And at, during the course of the play, there is an attempt to marry her off to Ferdinand, who is the equivalent of Rodolfo in the um, opera. Now, the, she only appears in two scenes, but they are two blazingly interesting scenes. In one scene of the play, that is, she interacts with Ferdinand, who is rejecting her like crazy, um, more so even than, than Rodolfo re rejects the Countess in the opera, uh, rejecting her like crazy until she points out to him that while she's been the official mistress of this prince, she's turned the state from a tyranny into a benevolent state and has turned around a lot of tyrannical acts and, um, and seen to the, uh, the life of the people. The other things that she's done, she places on record in her defense against this man who is accusing her of being the prince's mistress and therefore somebody he would never consider marrying even if he weren't in love with somebody else. Then she has one other big scene with the leading la lady and only those two scenes in the play. But Camerano says, no, you can't have this because we don't even have the strength of prime donne in Naples, but even if we did, the censors wouldn't want it. Um, but she's far too strong a woman. Um, and, and, she, and no prima donna would accept the part because it doesn't give her enough arias, was the implication. Um, you can't put her into lots and lots of, of the... Uh, of the events of the opera, so forget about it, Signor Verdi. And Verdi regret, regretfully drops that one. I'll Thank finish you, there. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a very comprehensive start to, to this show. Um, Simo, tell us about the play we've got, the opera we've got, and what we're going to be seeing on the stage tonight. Um, so, as we've just heard, it's really, there's quite a lot of changes from the original play, but um, it maintains that spirit um, of the, the sort of gestures of the individual characters apart from Federica um, and Lady Milford. What this production does again is distill those relationships down. It's really, Barbora really sees it as a psychological drama, as a family drama, um, as the interplay of the, as a sort of a way to focus on the interplay of different people, particularly. Um, so, well, actually, if we look at our first image, this is of um, Miller, the father. Um, the, the sort of framing of the piece as is within the mind of, of Miller as a way of... Oh, spoilers. That's Louisa fine. dies. <laughs> as, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, as, so, at the beginning, we see this, um, this funeral, this memory of his daughter, and the whole plot spins out from there. So, we're situated in this this place of memory, this place of mind, this place of emotion. Um, so we've lost a lot of the sort of um, class distinction that we had before in favour of understanding how people interact with each other, seeing that um, under a microscope. So here we see this sort of um, Miller remembering the birthday party of his young daughter, Louisa. There's... Um, <coughs> some wonderful um, children playing the young Louisa and young Rodolfo. Oh, tell us about the children. Why are they there? Yes, oh, so they, they represent the, the young 
the um, young, the youth of Louisa and Rodolfo, both as uh, parts, of, figments of the memories of their two fathers, um, and also as a sort of representation of the, etern the eternality of their love for each other, whether no matter what that they only met recently in the world of the opera, they have always loved each other from, they're always meant to be together and always will be meant to be, be, meant to be together. Okay. Um, it, it, is there a sense that you're seeing this, this world in black and white? I mean, in, in literal sense, yes, we are. Yes, and, and in any other way? I don't think so. I think part of, so part of Barbora's production, again, we have this incredibly simple set, we have lots of monochrome, is so that we see the characters in all their full colour without distracting by means of set and costume. Okay. Um, so we see, as well as having um, the, the characters seeing their inner lives portrayed in an external sense, so we just saw Miller with surrounded by clowns and sort of being hemmed in, we also see... Um, this character, particularly of Vorm. So um, Vorm has a, a place in the traditional story, but in this, he also represents the darkness growing inside each character. He, as a character, as a real person, he plays on the doubts and the fears of many of the characters. Um, and in this, we see <coughs> Barbour has taken it even a step further. So he means a huge different things to different people, whether it's playing on the fears of Walter and Walter's need for power and encouraging him to um, murder his predecessor, the count, um, the rightful count, um, whether it's playing on Rodolfo's fears that Louisa is unfaithful, whether it's even playing on Louisa's doubts about her relationship with Rodolfo. He gets, he's in all of those scenes um, and really encourages those doubts and fears to grow inside people. I, I'm very interested that he's, he's balefully sitting on the roof there, like yes, a ghastly yeah. presence. Is, yeah. is there quite a, a strong sort of physical load of gestures in this opera to, to help us understand what's going on? Yes, so Vorm is on stage for quite a lot of the time. So even when he's not interacting in the scene, he is, he is there. He's always there. The darkness, once it's there, never, grow, never goes away. And it's about how people respond to that. Um, so he's there a lot of times when, even, even just in the back of people's minds, in the corner of their eye, um, him and... if I think the next slide should be of the dancers. Yes, so we have um, Vorm's team of dancers um, who are also representations of the darkness and encourage this out um, of the different characters. I see. And can you just tell us what that unfortunate clown is? <laughs> so that's a, that's a sort of piñata or dummy. Um, oh. We see the, the Federica is... Um, character is quite different from Lady Milford in this opera, especially in um, this interpretation of it. Um, she, um, but one thing is certain, she's a woman of the people. Um, and the first time we meet her, she's sort of this almost celebrity, completely different from, she's Louisa's foil, she's completely different. It's the sort of, you see Rodolfo has this choice between this glamorous celebrity who everyone loves and finds hilarious and um, is the life and soul of the party. And then we have virtuous Louisa, who people do love as well, but she's innocent, she's sweet and calm and kind. Um, she doesn't have any of that glamour um, that uh, Federica does. So the first time we see Federica, she's stabbing this piñata um, oh. to the cheers of the crowd, um, which is just a complete opposite of anything that you would find Louisa doing. Okay, and um, just while you're there, yeah. there is an oil drum there, and all the critics <laughs> were puzzled by the oil drums. 
tell us about the oil drums. So the oil drums, I suppose um, one useful way of thinking about this is in, in this set, in this production, we see not just the, the representation of darkness, fear and doubt within us as through the music, through the storytelling. We also see it through Vorm and we see it through another thing. Um, the set is very tactile. The whole production is very much based around the physicalization, the sensation of fear and of pain and of worry. So um, as part of that, we see this beautiful blank white set slowly become darkened with paint, with oil, as all of the characters lose their innocence, as they lose their purity. Um, and part of that is that oil slowly, exactly as we can see on this, we start to see drawings um, covering up that white set. The oil drum is also part of that. So we have lots of oil. We also see Valter, who is, um, who has, before the opera's even started, has killed to get power. We see his, um, the darkness growing in him. He actively chooses to cover himself in this oil mm. and to try and smear it on other people to, um, to corrupt others. And um, if we just go on to the next slide, Amy. Um, Obviously, th there is a, a, at least ten minutes of cheerfulness in this show. <laughs> exactly, <isn't it>? <laughs> <laughs> but only ten, no more. <laughs> um, no, it's, aside from aside from all that, um, it is at its heart um, a love story. Okay. It's a love story. It's about real people, and that's I think that's so important. Aside from all this, we you know the, the sort of representation of things. It's about Rodolfo and Louisa's love, and actually probably. More importantly, at least to me watching it, it's about the love of a parent and a child. Um, so we see this sort of magical love between Louisa and Rodolfo, but we also see these two incredible um, and incredibly important parent, father, son or daughter relationships. Um, so And how they balance against each other, the two fathers and so two different ways we're of we're really into Verdi heartland here with, exactly, with, with, exactly. with the baritone dad and the soprano daughter and the love affair and, and great singers on stage. Stephanie, tell us things. Uh, this is early Verdi. T t tell us what comes to mind immediately to, so to introduce us. When to. we think about of early Verdi, we sort of think of, you know, starting starting off. This is definitely, as um, he was as you were saying, pre-Rigoletto, pre-Traviata and all those things. Um, I'd say this is... Typically, people call this um, the start of Verdi's middle period. So the, that, this is sort of the first opera that heralds things like particularly Rigoletto, which I think is the 17th opera, and Louise is the 15th opera he ever wrote. I think it's interesting in the fact that it, it had a longer gestation period than a lot of other Verdi operas. I mean, he was sort of churning them out four months at a time. Um, but because of complications with Naples, and he had a trouble finding a librettist and then trouble settling on a story, um, he had quite a lot of time to think about the type of music that he wanted with this. And I think as much as I'd love to say that this is a groundbreaking sort of um, way of his, him transforming his musical style completely, it's much more the act of him refining his craft already and refining some of the traditional musical forms. And I mean just touching on sort of what we were talking about before, bel canto yes, and indeed. what we need in bel canto. He definitely talks about, he takes the bel canto aria, which is traditionally, um, you've got a slower sort of introduction part, which is the aria, 
um, which is, as I said, slower, and it's to do with feelings, much like um, the aria in a Baroque opera, for example. But then you might have the second part, or the middle part, which would be uh, an intervention uh, from the chorus, for example, or a character just coming in and giving someone a piece of news. And then we'd have the final part, which we call the cabaletta, which is usually a fast-paced um, explosion of emotion rather than the slower um, the slower aria and just to give you a sense of the the, the flavor of the opera I mean the great thing about Verdi is that he was able to develop specific colors for each of his operas tinta um, as he calls them or tinte in um, yeah. the Italian plural um, for any Italians amongst us and it's kind of the opposite of what Wagnerians might call the leitmotif and I mean the, the reason why the leitmotif doesn't really work so well ideologically in Italian opera is because Italian opera is kind of based sort of moment to moment, whereas in things like Germanic opera, you're thinking about the long sort of the long narrative and the long stretch of the music and the ever, um, ever long lasting melodies, as Wagner would put it. Um, so we have these very specific colors and um, sequences that come back. I'm just going to play you a couple. I'll hold your mic for you in case you want to talk. But so this is the overture, which actually I'll just say a few words about the overture. Um, it's one of the first, uh, well, probably one of the only overtures that he wrote in C minor, um, very dark key. And it's very Germanic in the sense that there are sequences just sort of rising and going down, rising and going down. You can't have a, there's no theme that you can really latch on to. So I'll just play that very quickly. Uh, I'm not a pianist. In essence, the the start of the opera, and it really sets up the tone. And then, so we have this dark introduction, and then suddenly we move to this pastoral sort of rustic setting, which is signaled by a lovely 6-8, which I'll play very quickly. <coughs> it's very different in character. Well, exactly, and I think that's the whole point, is that, you know, we have the start, which is very dark, and then, you know, he signals these ten minutes of happiness that are about to unfold. And I think that's typically, Ver you know, Verdi. And if we compare it to um, something like La Traviata's opening, which came much later... those chords, you can see that there is a distinctive progression between Verdi of the middle period and Verdi of the late period. I think that's all the piano that we're going to have okay. right now. Um, <laughs> but just to touch upon bel canto singing in general, I mean, we've got an absolutely fantastic cast. I know that's something that um, we're going to discuss at some point. But the act of bel canto singing is something that was de developed in sort of the, the 19th century, particularly by people like Verdi. And um, we can say that Donizetti sort of heralded the that era before Verdi, was, um, before Verdi was writing, but it's the act of 
you have to have a powerful singing voice not only to sustain these incredibly long phrases. I mean, this is pre-Wagner as well. You know, Verdi and Donizetti, people like that, even Rossini created these incredibly long lines that singers had to sustain with incredibly dense orchestrations underneath. I know I, I, I played you the cheery bit, um, but if you can imagine the non-cheery bit that isn't as chirpy and sort of light, you know, we've got some seriously dense string orchestrations, a lot of brass and, you know, Verdi baritones in particular are famed for having to have an incredibly high range and basses are famed for having to carry their voices across an orchestra. So it is kind of, you know, pre-Wagnerian in that sense. And you also have to have the lightness to to do all these absolutely incredible cadenzas and get to those top notes um, and sing these incredibly florid passages. So it does demand a lot from singers and demands a particular type of training rather than sort of light operette or even things like Britain's operas. Yes, it, uh, the, the cast night is particularly fine and the tenor was astonishing. Yes, David. A real Verdi tenor. Yeah. Uh, and in spite of this and in spite of the fact that we have these two-part songs and, and the cabaletta, and, and it's almost a, a, a clap trap, isn't it? You finish a, a really good uh, cabaletta and leave, and the, and the audience should burst into applause. Um, and yet my impression of the show was so often about dialogue. Um, Simone, can you tell us about that? Because it's, even if they're singing a solo, they seem to be singing it to somebody. And there are surely several duets as such, are there not? In yeah, the show? One of the best bass duets as well, I must say, bass baritone duets. Yeah. I think musically, from, from my point of view, I think that because it is a family drama, we have so many interactions and musical interactions. I'm not saying that each character has a particular motif, but you do see a lot of these little um, sort of musical ideas interweaving sometimes, like the, the one that I played, um, the overture, that comes back at the beginning of Act 3. So it's all about these ideas sort of coming back. And because it is a family drama, it's all going to sort of come together and the voices are going to come together a lot. And that's so my musical expression. Yeah. It is. There's only another one in it's Don Carlos, I think. And, and San Bocanegra. Yeah. Evil schemers. And um, uh, Walter and Wurm are scheming together. And it actually is a, a long prelude, but it, it is a kind of prelude to uh, Philip and the Grand Inquisitor mm. um, singing uh, against the two basses, singing a bass duet mm. in Don Carlos. Um, mm. Again, um, Almost competing for baseness of of moral of morals as well as having their base duet. Yes. Um, but you you're getting a prelude for that in, yeah. in, in this base baritone. No, Simone, because some of the direction must have been quite conventional in a way to to get these people to interact with each other. Are we seeing slightly a conventional show as well? I think in the. Um, Great acting, which is and great drama, which is the heart, at the heart of all opera, regardless of how, what the production itself looks like. That interaction between people is always at the heart. That humanity and the fragility of human life and human experience is always at the heart of every production. In that sense, we are getting a very traditional production. Like you said, even even though we have sort of traditional aria forms in some ways. Um, it's always they always move the story forward, Every, and I think that's the joy of this sort of two-part aria. We have a scene in which something's established. We then maybe have an aria in which um, we explore how that feels for a character. We have an interruption where everything changes. There's some wonderful moments where you think you're going in one direction, and the the libretto, the music, and the actors just wrench you in another. Someone may come in. Someone may reveal a piece of information. Um, someone may have a change of heart um, 
that takes you into this caballetto, into this final part of the scene. Um, but even that will always propel you forward into the next, um, into the next bit of the story. So in that sense, in finding that dramatic and that musical pacing, we do have a very traditional production indeed, even though it's clothed slightly differently. Okay. <laughs> um, it's, it's, does Schiller write, as it were, soliloquies, Jonathan? Or was, he does. does he write dialogue? No, he does write soliloquies. Schiller and Goethe uh, and Lessing too, they're all so Shakespeare-driven. Oh, yes, of um, course. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, I curse myself that I didn't discover Schiller in earlier years because I was, uh, as a young man, I just loved Shakespeare so much. But um, it wasn't until a very advanced middle age that I discovered Schiller at all. And suddenly you realize in somebody like, in, in a play like Maria Stuart, which gives us the, the base play for Donizetti's Maria Stuarda, you find this great historical drama about the two queens, Mary, Queen of, of Mary of Scotland and, and Elizabeth of England. And, and it's unlike Shakespearean history plays, which are basically pro the nation, whatever else they are, it's an anti-Elizabeth play. It's, it's anti-English. Um, so its model is Shakespeare. But it but, turns it on but, its head. But yes. its ideology is yeah. kind of, oh, the wicked one is, is, yeah. is the Shakespearean queen. Oh. So, and and it is, it's up there with the, the finest of Shakespeare's historical dramas. Um, yes. Um, I, what many people have said to me who've watched this show, and I just want a one-liner from each of you, why are there no mothers? One line. <laughs> <laughs> Try. <laughs> have, have you got an idea? Go on. I yes. can't tell you why there are no mothers. Okay. I think that would be a long conversation with Birdie and <laughs> Carano. Um, but I can tell you that this production is about generations. It's about what people across generations do for each other and what affect they have on each other, mm -hmm. whether it's father on son or daughter, or even the other way round. Mm. Um, and in a sort of general sense, the sins of the father, but also what they've given to them, what good qualities they've given to them, and how that shapes you as a person. And we see that a lot in how the two relationships, uh, the two sort of father-child relationships occur, um, but also in what the children take from that and what they give back to their parents. That's a very good answer. Thank you so much. Is there an orchestral colour or anything? <laughs> oh, but you were going to answer my question. No, but I just, I just wanted to say that I think generally in a lot of Verdi's operas, there are not a lot of mothers, and I think that's just because the Italian dramatic operatic trope, at least in my view, is that the soprano is always the leading lady, the mezzo is always the other woman, as in this case. And then, you know, you're left with a leading tenor and a bass or a baritone who is, you know, the baddie, or in this case, the father. So I think musically, you know, Verdi was probably not thinking um, as far ahead as he could have been. Um, and I'm not, I'm not condoning him and I'm not supporting him either, but I think that's just the way that, it's, in his mind, musically, the framework that he wanted to it's inhabit. It's practical and dramatic and, and but yeah. I, but I think that Schiller was thinking father ahead 60 years earlier. The, the Schiller play opens with a squabble between Louisa's father, Miller, 
and Frau Miller. Oh. And it's a, it's a very, very engaging dramatic scene because um, Louise's father is very, very worried about this relationship that their bourgeois daughter is having with a court young man. And he's not in disguise in the Chalet play. Okay. And whereas the mother is thrilled that her bourgeois daughter has picked up one of the court figures. All right? And Schiller knows that because of class, at least in Germany, in the times that he is writing, that is bound for disaster. Okay. And um, this just can't be taken on. It's too big a social canvas. So the... Really to, to bring all into the Verdi play. For, but also, I agree totally with you, mothers somehow aren't there in, in the Verdi operas. You think again and again of Traviata, where's the mother? Don Carlos, where's the mother? And if, if they do turn up, they turn out to be Azucena. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, a, there is, just very quickly, there is a theory about this, that because Verdi's first wife died um, quite early on into their marriage, that he was never quite able to bring himself psychologically to put a mother into his stories. And that's a big can of worms, which we won't open now, but that's just something to ponder. Right, well, actually, it is time for you to ponder. Is there any question from the audience that... Ah, oh, somebody's straight up there at the back, Amy, please. Right, could you, could you actually... Could we hear that in the microphone? Could I ask about the a cappella quartet? Yes, of I course. I think it's quite unusual for Verdi to write something without orchestra. It is unusual. I mean, I, I haven't. I think it happens a couple of times in his output, but it does. It is more sort of reminiscent of things like Mozart and particularly like Cosi van Tutte, mm. that quartet. Um, although in this case, it's not exactly a love, a love circle, a love. Um, I uh, love squares, it is in Cosby, <laughs> or love, or whatever, it's very complicated. Um, but you do have this idea, this dramatic pause kind of in the action where every character is able to just internally sort of take a moment to express how they're feeling. And you, you will see, especially in Martin Fitzpatrick's translation, which is absolutely gorgeous, mm. you will see very different instances of people feeling very different things and putting that into words through music and through the same tune and harmonizing it together. And I think that's what's so fascinating about um, any unaccompanied quartet, but particularly this one. It comes at a really crucial moment dramatically. It looks fiendishly difficult too. It is difficult. Yeah, it's difficult it to, to keep everyone in tune. It's funny, you might see, not obviously not in our show, <laughs> but there are, there are some instances, perhaps on if you do some digging on YouTube, where you will hear um, singers doing an, an, an unaccompanied quartet. And then as the orchestra comes in, they will, you'll notice that there's sort of a tone out, or it's usually a tone, um, a tone lower or, or a semitone lower because everything's dropped so, ever so slightly, but not in this show, of course. Uh, and of course, is there, is there another question? Uh, so, uh, gentleman at the front, please. Is the role of childhood significant in this opera? I mean, Simone, you've mentioned that there is a reference to it. In, in your production, um, but um, uh, uh, Federica and uh, um, what's his name uh, have a have a specific uh, reference uh, to it as well. So there is this um, um, uh, contrast uh, between the two. It, it, is that in the opera, or is it Definitely. your suggestion? Definitely, I think, and in a sort of more literal sense, 
exactly we have reference of Federica and Rodolfo's childhood relationship and what that means, whether, whether that's still important once you've grown up. And I think it's this, um, it's that theme which is written throughout the entire opera. What happens when we age, when we mature, more specifically, not when we age, when we mature, when we lose our innocence? Mm. How does, what, what is that process? What is the loss of innocence? When we first meet Louisa, he is, to Rodolfo, a picture of perfection, of innocence, of how he potentially wishes his life could be. Through the opera, that changes. The scales fall from their eyes, and more scales are put on, um, and they fall as well, um, and we lose innocence all over again. So it's not necessarily explicitly always childhood, but it's that purity of what we, the, the, the innocence we associate with youth. Interesting. So. Is, is there one last question? Because. Yeah. They can be run to the cheek. In the Schiller play, um, Louisa is aware of Ferdinand's identity from the outset. Yes. And it's often been said it, it's, it's rather like Romeo and Juliet, the Schiller play. Yes. Why did Verdi change it? Why did Verdi introduce the Giselle aspect? Well, it's Camerano, uh, it, Camerano has got the main hand in the, in the changes. I'm guessing that um, it's not, it's, it, it, it fits in with the conventions of opera better that there be a mistaken identity, that somebody be in disguise, as in Giselle, courting uh, in a pastoral setting, that the court figure is... It's a bit like Winter's Tale, too. The court figure is in the pastoral setting, although Florizel is known to Perdita, isn't... Perdita knows that Florizel is... Yeah, is I told you what would happen, she says. But, yeah, but, so. but nobody yeah. else does. Yeah. But it, it fits in with those con pastoral conventions better, I think, that he be in disguise, he's even in disguise to her. She doesn't know his real mm. identity. Mm. And um, I think that's an interesting matter. And in fact, in some ways, possibly you could claim it's an improvement on Schiller because the, the man in disguise is uh, trying to make his way in love without having the baggage of his court background yeah. uh, uh, to deal with, with the very woman he's making out with. Mm. So I, I think that in some respects that introduces something positive that's not there in the Schiller. Uh, but it's certainly a, a pastoral trope, going back to Shakespeare and earlier. Thank you. Thank you for such lovely questions and for such great answers. And I'm afraid we've got to stop. Show, you're in for a real <laughs> treat. It's a really, really great uh, show. Very interesting indeed. Yeah. Um, Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.